Edge of Providence, Chapter 6, written by Adiduck and Whimsical Images, and read by God of Laundry Baskets. Do you sense anything now? Boba asks, and Anakin takes a deep, deep breath. He is a Jedi. He is serene. He is centered in the Force. Strangling a very worried seven-year is not the Jedi way, no matter how annoying he is. No, Anakin says, and continues to walk down the hallway, Boba trailing after him like a tiny, fretty shadow. He still feels like he's asleep. He's in hyperspace, Boba. It's not going to change for at least a day. You can stop asking every two minutes. No, no. Serene. He's serene. He serenely continues down the hall, as fast as he can without leaving Boba behind, and rounds the final corner to stick his head into Rex's bunk module, one of Rex's batchmates. He's trying out Vaughn, Anakin's pretty sure looks up from where he's fiddling with something. Sir Anakin, he says, starting to stand, and Rex's bunk tube shoots out a second later, revealing a wide-eyed Rex already half over the side before the bunk is fully extended. Anakin waves at Vaughn not to get up. The movement's starting to be automatic now, and isn't that weird, and turns to Rex. Anakin, what's going on? Rex asks as he gets his feet on the ground. I heard that Nalase killed a CC, and that one of the trainers smeared her over the walls for it, and I can't find Cody. Cody's in the med bay, Boba says, and Rex freezes, eyes wide with panic. Sleeping, Anakin interrupts, cutting off whatever spiral Rex was about to fall into. He went over to watch Fox, who's recovering from something Nalase did to him. Everyone's fine. Burr went to kill Dooku, and Kenobi went after him. Boba adds. Prime's going to kill someone? Vaughn asks, sounding like he's barely keeping up with this conversation, but is fascinated nevertheless. Anakin doesn't blame him. He sighs. Serene. Serene. Look, he says. Can I borrow you for a bit, Rex? I'll explain, but I wanted to... (sighs) He trails off. How to say he wanted to dump Boba, who was still leaking worry everywhere on Domino, and had sort of hoped he could drag Rex along with him. Being surrounded by friends should help Boba. Probably. Anakin thinks. It seems it doesn't matter. Rex looks at Vaughn, and Vaughn groans like Rex is killing him and flops back dramatically on his bunk before going back to the puzzle in his hand. Fine, fine, I'll cover for you. Again, he mutters, rolling his eyes. I'll catch you up later, Rex says and grabs his boots. Uh, Anakin says. He tells us everything every time. Vaughn says cheerfully, not looking away from his puzzle. Ah, Anakin says, and Rex looks up. Was I not supposed to? No, no, it's fine. 
Where's Kenobi now? Boba demands, and Anakin shuts his eyes. Still in hyperspace, still asleep, he says, instead of screaming. Let's go, Rex says, and slips past them and out the door without a by your leave. He doesn't, technically, even know where they're going, though Anakin admits to himself he can probably guess. Anakin isn't sure how he ever deluded himself into thinking he was in control of this situation. The trip to Domino's bunk module is the same as the trip to Rex's, except now Boba's radiating distress at both of them. After a minute, Rex reaches back and snags Boba by the collar, pulling him in to shake him gently like a tuka kit. Boba slumps just a bit and leans in. Anakin, he starts, still asleep. Anakin says and rounds the final bend before the bunk module. Fives and 09 explode out of the room. Eight two follows immediately on their heels. I'm going to skin you both, Eight two's hissing. Leave the Jedi alone. Anakin, Fives says, stopping right in the middle of the hallway, just before 09 slams into him and Eight two slams into him. They go down in a tangle of limbs. Rex stops where he is and sighs the sigh of a man at least three times his age. Anakin suspects he copied it from Cody. I'm sorry about them, Rex says. Anakin waves that off, watching them struggle to their feet again. What's going on? Onine asks once he's squirmed out of the tangle. Everyone's saying a cadet was decommissioned, Fives adds, eyes wild and scared. Stop interrogating him, 8-2 starts. Rex puts two fingers in his mouth and whistles loud and piercing. All three cadets fall silent. In the doorway, 4-0 and 2-0-10 cringe and slink back inside instead of peering out like gossips spying on the kids in Moss Espa. Into the bunk module, Rex says, firm, and marches past them into the room, hauling Boba along. Anakin shrugs and follows, and is met with 4-0 just inside the door, puffed up like an angry Tuka. Who was decommissioned? He snaps. Do we know why? 4-0! 8-2 snaps. We don't even know if someone was decommissioned, 2-0-10 adds. We shouldn't assume. Well, we were trying to find out. Fives starts, heated. Anakin's head is starting to hurt. Everyone shut up for a click, Rex begins, releasing Boba and rounding on them. Okay, Anakin shouts, and all six cadets snap to attention, startled. Anakin winces. Okay, he says again at normal volume. I'm going to tell you what I know, and then you can ask questions until we run out of questions I can answer, he says. And when nobody interrupts, he slides down against the wall, crossing his legs. Nalasay injected Fox with something. He's in the med bay right now, and Cody's with him, because he called Cody before it happened, and Cody called us. Cody's uninjured, just asleep. Nalasay is... He stops. Swallows. Dead, he says shortly. Vet found out she was working with a man named Dooku, doing something against the contract. And since Dooku and Fett have... 
force, he really doesn't want to have to explain Galderon. Have history, he settles on. Since they have history, and Fett hates him, he ran off to try to kill him. But Dooku's really powerful, so Boba went and got Skarada and Obi-Wan, and Obi-Wan went after Fett to back him up. They are both currently in hyperspace. He stops. Breathes. The cadets stare at him, dumbstruck. Boba still looks miserable and afraid. Anakin grimaces. Questions? All six of them start talking at once. Stop! He says, and there's silence. Okay, um, 2010, you first. Why'd Nala say try to decommission Fox? 2010 asks. We're still trying to figure that out, Anakin admits. She wiped her hard drives and Fox is still unconscious. Boba makes a tiny sound. 8-2 reaches out without looking and hauls Boba in tucking him against his side with an arm around his shoulders. Anything yet? Boba asks, and Anakin sighs. No, he says, and feels bad about it this time. Still in hyperspace, Boba. Boba hums and falls quiet again. Anakin wishes there was something he could do about that. All right, next question he says, hoping it'll serve as a distraction. Prime went after Dooku, and Obi-Wan went after him, Foro repeats. Who's Dooku, and why is he powerful enough that Prime needed a Jedi for backup? Not a distraction. Okay. Dooku was a Jedi, Anakin says. He was, actually. He was Obi-Wan's master's master, But he left the order when Obi-Wan's master died, and now he's... Well, he fell to the dark side of the Force. What's the dark side? Onine asks. Evil, Anakin says firmly. He's only ever seen one Sith from a distance, but that was enough. The Sith Obi-Wan killed had felt indescribably wrong, in a way that made the Force scream, had kept Anakin up at night for weeks. He can't imagine what would drive a person to actually seek that feeling, to practically marinate in it the way the Zabrak had. It made sense to him when the Jedi said that the dark side was everything you didn't want to be. Who would want to feel like that all the time? I didn't No Jedi could be evil, Fives says, sounding, Obi-Wan would say, disquieted. Anakin winces. If you follow the code, then you don't fall, he tries to explain. But the code is hard, and it isn't for everyone, and sometimes people decide to leave. And if they're not really, really careful after they stop following the code... (laughs) Evil Jedi? Rex offers. Evil Force user, Anakin insists firmly. Jedi aren't evil. Jedi killed Burr's entire family, Boba says, where he's tucked in under 8-2's arm, and Anakin... Anakin doesn't really know what to say to that. Well, 
So much for not explaining Galderon, he thinks, wryly. That was a mistake, he begins, feeling his way through the answer that's coalescing in his chest, putting words around it to give it shape. The Jedi weren't happy to fight the hot Mandawad. That's what evil is. People who hurt other people because they don't care or because they just like to make people hurt. People who hurt people on purpose. That's not the Jedi. But Burr said Dooku led the fight against the hot Mandawad, and you just said he was a Jedi, Boba points out, lifting his head to narrow his eyes at Anakin. And you just said Dooku was evil. I don't know if he was yet, Anakin insists. I never met him, so I can't say how he felt about it when it happened. I know he's evil now. I can feel it. And Prime and Obi-Wan went to fight him, Onine says quietly. Silence falls over the room again. Anakin sighs. And then Rex sits up, a determined frown firmly in place. All right, he says. What can we do to help? Anakin blinks. Help? Everything's a mess right now, Rex says. And it's just you and T here. How can we help? We can at least tell everybody that nobody died except Nala Say. Fives offers. Who did kill Nala Say? Eight Two asks, and Anakin shrugs. I don't actually know. Well, we'll figure it out, Rex says, and we'll tell everyone what you told us about the Jedi and the Sith, and see if anyone has any ideas about why Nala Say wanted to decommission Fox. The worst thing that can happen with, with Obi Wan and Prime gone, is everybody panicking. Anakin blinks. Again. That's true, he says, and Rex nods. Boba, he says, you should stay here tonight. I'm not a baby, Boba says, starting to sit up. You know a lot of what happened with Prime, Onine says. You can help us tell everyone. Boba slumps again, grumbling, and nods. Anakin doesn't let himself feel relieved. All right, Rex says, and looks at the others. Then we have a plan. He looks at Anakin. We'll help. Rex is frowning, determined, and for a split second, Anakin can see him much older than he is, with the same exact expression, world-weary, but still ready to fight. Anakin nods slowly. Yeah, okay, he says, and takes a deep breath. Let's do it. Cody comes awake all at once. There's a twisting, disorienting moment where his brain registers medbay, but his body informs him he's in the wrong position to be waking up injured, and he's stumbling out of the chair. He was in a chair— and to his feet even as his stomach rolls in a way that means sedatives leaving your system. At ease, Kote, Turfo's voice cuts in, and he's snapping straight and falling into position, 
feet shoulder width apart and hands clasped behind him before his brain has made the last few connections. Nalase and poison and fox. His head wrenches to the side, neck muscles spasming where they'd locked up. And it's only years of training that keeps his posture straight. Turfoe, bucket on, and body language relaxed, is sitting in a chair similar to the ones he remembers Glimmer shoving him into. Beyond her, medical bunk tilted to get him partially upright, Fox watches him with open, half-lidded eyes. Cody feels the adrenaline leave him, eyes prickling, and he locks his knees hard to keep himself upright. What's your status, cadet? Turfo asks, in her usual, neutral, even monotone. Sir, he croaks, and clears his throat, tries again, his head's clearing. I think trainer Glamar drugged my tea, sir. He did, Turfo says, and Fox makes a noise that might be trying to be a laugh. Negative symptoms? The dizziness is already starting to clear. The wobbling, the choking relief. Those aren't from the tea. No, sir, he says. To me, then, she says, and Cody moves closer, eyes still locked on his brother. You're both very lucky. The Kamini was sloppy this time. Yes, sir, Cody says, and reaches to catch Fox's grasping hand part way, squeezing his brother's wrist hard. It's... Turfo's right here, and even this is indecorous. But Fox's pulse isn't too fast or thready anymore. It's fine. He's... fine. Turfo sighs. You have permission to speak freely, she says, and paradoxically, it makes Cody's throat close, language leaving him all at once. Fox was just reporting what he remembers, which, unfortunately, is not much. Fox grimaces, fingers spasming against Cody's wrist. I'm sorry, sir, he mutters, voice croaky and quiet. Cody swallows. Does Turfo want him to see if he'll have better luck getting Fox to remember? She isn't saying anything, just sitting there with her arms folded, tenser than usual. Cody breathes in, forces his voice out. Do you remember calming me? He asks, and Fox shakes his head. Cody's heart plummets. I remember... Fox pauses, swallows. I remember flash training, and then I woke up here. Cody breathes. Okay, he says, and glances at Turfo. She tilts her head, silent. I went to find- I went to address the lighting issue in the classroom, he says carefully. It's one thing to go and wrestle Boba into compliance when he's a brat, but telling a trainer isn't something any of them would do. You went down to the labs for some reason. He'd gone down to the labs to snoop, and Cody can see Fox hearing him carefully not saying that, mouth tightening in acknowledgement. And you calmed me one way when... 
His voice cuts out. It clears his throat, letting himself clench his fingers into a fist, grounding. When Nalase called you in, Fox's breathing picks up. I don't remember, he says again, and Cody smiles, because that's terrifying, but it's also maybe good. She poisoned you for seeing something, he explains carefully. Oh, Fox says and shuts his eyes. I got there as fast as I could, Cody adds, because he needs Fox to know that, suddenly, viscerally. I, I, Nine-Nine got me into her lab, and I called... Cody makes himself not glance at Turfo, makes himself just use Obi-Wan's first name out loud. He'd already done it once. Called Obi-Wan, and, and, and I had Boba call Prime, told him that one of the commandos was in trouble. He manages a little smile for Fox, who huffs a laugh. Fox is starting to tremble, exhausted and scared now that he knows what happened. What? Fox swallows. What about say? She will not be an issue anymore, Turfo cuts in, and Cody nearly jumps. Fox breathes. Yes, sir, he says, and falls silent. Cody does, too. He doesn't know what else to say, really. You told Fett a commando was in trouble, Turfo prompts, and Cody cringes, making his fingers release Fox's wrist as he turns to face the music. Yes, sir, he says. It's factually correct. We are commandos. Commanders, not commandos. Turfo corrects calmly, and Cody blinks. Your quick thinking got fat there. You did well. But you two will only be commandos in the sense that all Hatad are. You will be commanders. Her helmet tilts towards them, obviously taking them both in. She's not reprimanding him. Cody feels like things are hitting his brain on a 15-second delay, and it's really, really annoying. You will be good, commanders, she says. You should be proud of that. I know I am. Cody glances at Fox, sees him looking back. He takes a deep breath. His head is roiling, confused and choppy, like... One time when they were all five, developmental ten... Wolf had dared him to jump off the barrier into the water and swim a full lap of the city. The water had been ice cold, sharpened down to his bones, and the waves had whirled him around so many times he'd lost his sense of which way was up. He'd only made it about halfway around before someone had to fish him out of the ocean. His head feels a bit like that. Proud of us. He clarifies, make sure that each syllable is clear, so that there is no mistake in what he's saying. Fox is very still on the bed. He may be holding his breath. Turfo is silent for a moment, and then she reaches up, pulls her helmet off, and sets it on her knee. Alec Cote, she says, in the deliberate way she says everything. 
She's the only adult who's ever called him Kota, has done it for as long as he's known her. Like, she'd known what he meant when he told her his name. His eyes are burning all of a sudden, and his throat is tight. Of both of you. Of all of you. Oh, Fox says, voice choked, and Cody can't look back at him, needs to blink furiously, eyes glued on his own hands. Oh, he echoes, and pretends his voice isn't thick, too. Mm, Turfo says, and stands, moves to sit on the bed and haul Fox up from where he's reclined, pull Cody in by the shoulders. Her arms are very solid as she holds them both close. Oh. The main benefit of the fire spray are its speed and stealth, so Django feels confident, leaving it on a ledge, pinned to the side of the cliff face a ways down from Dooku's estate, while he goes to do some recon. The palace looms large above the overhang, symmetrical, a huge, flat rectangle with a dome in the middle and turrets on either side, dingy gray concrete and durasteel. The stone of the cliff crawls up the exterior walls like weather-beaten fingers, like the land is trying to reclaim the space where a growth has formed. He can make out guards, too, walking along the top and inside through the yellow windows. Django makes a decision, and climbs by hand instead of using his jetpack, stealth over expediency, and wedges himself into an outcropping. From here, he can nearly see to the top of the dome and mark the windows. He'll have to jetpack up when he attacks. He won't be able to move quickly enough otherwise. The thing about fighting Jedi, Django knows, is that you have to do something fast and unexpected. Otherwise, they get a chance to use their control of a mystical power beyond the ken of mortals, and you die. Generally speaking. Django has more experience than anyone could ever want with the phenomenon. Dooku might not be a Jedi anymore, but Django fought Vasa too. It's the same carking thing. And besides, he knows Dooku has known whatever part of him is Tyrannus for years, and had fought Dooku, the Jedi, before that. That's why he's here. Django had missed the signs, hadn't looked close enough again, again, and criffed this Hutton Lachabur for it. Django bets he got a laugh out of this, mirroring the playbook of the worst day of Django's life. Django cuts off the thought viciously. He knows how to fight Count Dooku. This time, he won't lose. Like he told Boba, he's got a debt to pay. At any rate, that means his best shot will be his first shot. Catching Dooku unawares is paramount. It'll be best if he can enter through an exterior window and engage him directly. He remembers what looked like a throne from the hollows of this Hutton playing Tyrannus. Yellow-green light bathing Dooku's hooded figure in sickly tones even through the blue of the projection. That could have been caused by the stained yellow transparent steel of these windows set high into the structure. 
He'll have to check them all to find the bastard, probably. That's fine. He has a jetpack and nothing but time. Dooku knows he knows, but he doesn't know when Jango's coming. That's a point in Jango's favor. And besides, he thinks, eyes falling on the huge, ornate window near the top. He's got a hunch of which of these might look into a throne room. He waits until the sun begins to set, watching the people he can see moving around inside, taking note of the guards that pass and beings who seem to spend time in the back of the palace. Maybe droids of some kind? Not very sophisticated ones, at any rate. He sees Dooku, once, headed up, and tracks his path through the building, noting he doesn't return the way he came. Jango takes another half an hour to scarf down a ration bar and make sure the light will let him see in, twilight making the windows shine, before kicking on his jetpack, running it as quietly as he can as he heads upwards, kills it just a moment before he catches the ledge of the big window to look inside. The room is dark, but Django can make out a long walkway down the middle towards massive double doors. There's a throne in the center of the room, oversized and jagged, and Dooku sits on it, speaking to someone standing at the foot of the dais. An aide, maybe. The transparent steel is apparently soundproof. Django can't hear in. He grins, and holds himself still, noting the security cams dotted around the room while he waits for the being to leave. Dooku watches them go, then pulls out a data pad, settling back into the seat as he presumably waits for his next appointment. Django hopes it's unimportant enough that he can cancel. He kicks off and fires the jetpack, rising until he's looking down into the shadowed room, the last of the sunlight behind him casting the back of the ostentatious throne room and the man sitting on it into stark relief. Dooku has just enough time to turn and start to stand before the whistling birds on Django's arm shatter the transparent steel and he follows the shards through and down with a crash. He has his westers in his hands before Dooku's recovered, shooting as he flies straight towards him. Dooku's cod springs to life, spilling red light over the dark dura steel of the throne room and glittering orange off the yellow shards, but it doesn't matter. Django isn't expecting to hit him. He twists in the air at the last moment, shoots wide enough to force the cod to the side and hits Dooku boots first in the chest with his full weight, grinning at the crack of bones and the thud of Dooku hitting the floor. Django hits the ground a second later, rolls through and to his feet and turns again to get close. He shoots again as Dooku gets to his feet, trying to force the cod up again to get it out of the way. But he's not quite fast enough to stop the blade from twisting around and searing down his left leg instead. He stumbles. Dooku raises a hand, and then there's something closing around Django's windpipe as he's raised into the air, only years of conditioning keeping his grip firm on his westers instead of dropping them to claw at his throat. He chokes, fights through, and raises one blaster enough to aim at Dooku's legs once, twice. Dooku jumps back instead of blocking, too nimble for his age. Shabla Darjeti! And Django hits his knees as the air re-enters his lungs, the room spinning as he gasps. Dooku stands a few steps away, still looking perfectly composed. Mandalore Fett, he greets, and Jango 
burns, furious. You made excellent time. Count Dooku, Django growls back and puts his feet back under him. I was motivated. Your shields are quite impressive, Dooku continues. Thanks, Jango says and fires again, dodging to the side and towards Dooku as a man raises his card. He lunges under a strike and rolls, coming up at the Darjati's back still firing, shoots at Dooku's hand as he tries to raise it. Dooku leaps to the side and something catches Jango right out of the air and sends him out into the hallway and straight into the wall, hard. He gasps feels his ribs crack and his head rattle inside his helmet, HUD fritzing with the hit. He doesn't wait for his vision to clear, regains his footing, and takes off down the hall, turning a corner before Dooku can reach the door to the throne room. I can sense you, Django Fett, Dooku turns, voice spreading impossibly far down the hallway. There is nowhere in this palace you can hide from me. Django bares his teeth in the safety of his helmet. Good. He shoulders his way into a room, ballroom, deep and high, with granite pillars stretching up to a ceiling decorated in elegant arches, and shuts the door, picking an alcove to slide into. He isn't hiding. He knows his odds. If he wants to win, he'll need to pick the battlefields, pick the terms of engagement. If Dooku has any time to get comfortable, Django's finished. But Django's been a bounty hunter for a long time now, and worked alone for all of it. Dooku's fault. He knows how to hunt on his own. Dooku's upper hand isn't as strong as he thinks it is. Django's leg burns, ribs aching from his swift meeting with the wall. He ignores the pain, pressing himself back into the corner, turning his shields to Besker in his mind. It doesn't matter. You have to kill a Jedi as quickly as possible. Don't give them anything for their force to use. Keep them reactive. Dooku steps into the ballroom, footsteps sedate and even, and Django breathes in quiets himself to focus. If he times us right, lets Dooku walk himself into position, Dooku will be blocking bolts to his head long enough for Django to sneak under his guard. Hiding in the shadows, Mandalore, Dooku calls, and his voice reaches into all the darkened corners of the ballroom, slides insidiously down Django's spine. Django ignores that, too. He's the best criffing Baroya in the galaxy. Dooku's going to have to do better than that. It seems a coward's way to fight. But I suppose that since your failure at Galderon, you haven't exhibited very many of the traits expected of a... What was it? Oh, a true Mandalorian. Yes. That's right. Just noise. Django stays where he is, keeps himself silent, thoughts firmly behind his shields. Do you know, Dooku says conversationally as his footsteps pause, checking a corner, maybe. 
I prepared quite thoroughly for this eventuality. It occurred to me that you might, at some point, ascertain our shared history. He says it with mild distaste. Like Galderon had been a day, he'd once stepped in Bantha Osik. Jenko keeps his jaw from clenching. It was a consideration while I was vetting you, Dooku continues, and the footsteps start again. So I reached out to an old colleague of yours. Sure you did, Jenko thinks, bored. He hopes it was Montrose. That Hutton is just about the only person Jango can think of who might still know Karkal about Jango by then. Dooku had seen to that himself. Mind, Dooku says. Salasal Da was a shadow of the man who had stood at Jaster Muriel's side, or even yours. Jango freezes, breath caught in his throat like a fist. But he knew enough, as I'm sure you can imagine. No. He lasted a remarkably long time, for a force null. Dooku muses as his measured footsteps move to the next pillar. The shadows are bathed in red light, the thrum of the cod audible even over Jenko's suddenly fast breathing. Weeks. But he told me everything in the end. About Korda, and the time after, how you operated as a leader, where you fell short. He's lying, Jango tells himself. He's lying, because if Silas had survived Galderon, Jango would have known. But... Weeks, echoes in Jango's mind clattering like an unsecured weapons locker on a hard bank. Weeks. His fingers tighten on his westers, convulsive. Most of it wasn't useful to me. Dooku's voice carries into Django's corner, the thrum of plasma and the steady footsteps on the stone a metronome in counterpoint to Django's pulse. He's lying, Jenga reminds himself again. He was certainly scraping the bottom of the barrel when he began to talk about teaching you to drink to thaw, like an older brother, or your courtship with your second-in-command. No, no. But there were more than enough observations of tactics and thought processes through the months that I let that pass. It's a lie. By the end, though, there wasn't much left of his mind of use. What he could manage to convey was disjointed, and healing his throat simply to listen to him prattle on about swindling you out of your best blaster on your seventeenth life day seemed a waste of Bacta. I ordered his heart stopped. Dooku's visible now, close enough to make a shot, but the angle's wrong, and Django's holding himself still by sheer willpower, shielding with all his might. Only Silas and Scarada and Miles would know about that. He can't be lying. 
This Jakah had found Silas when Django thought he was dead, had held him and tortured him, and Django had been oblivious, knocking around the galaxy, looking to drown himself in thrill in a few credits. He shoves that away, shoves it in a box. Five more steps, and Dooku will be in range, just a little closer. He begged me, you know, Dooku muses, holding his jetikad up to check the shadows. Not to tell you that he'd been complicit. I suppose he was ashamed. Dooku shakes his head, perfectly composed, and turns once more to pace into the open. Pity. I didn't promise him, of course. I do wonder if he died knowing that I'd use his betrayal as a weapon one day. Django's control shatters. He lunges out of the corner, already shooting, and Dooku's blade rises to block the boats. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Django is going to tear this Shabur apart with his bare hands. Dooku raises a hand, and Django feels something slam into his mental shields, ripping through them and into his head. It feels like fingernails. It feels like claws. Django is on his knees. Images spinning before his eyes and head screaming with vertigo, sharp, disjointed snippets of Jaster bleeding out his home, burning, his barrier dead, the Shepper foreman on the spice freighter who liked to slam slaves' head into the product, bodies of his people strewn into the ground, he has to warn the- Where's our mile? Seared into Montrose alive, Jasper's arm, hanging off, aiming at his head. Django rips his bushai off. He can't breathe. He's heaving up the ration bar he ate, not even an hour go. He can't see. There are footsteps coming towards him, and he needs to stand up. He can't. He can't. Pathetic, says the voice from his nightmares, and then the all-too-familiar jolt of electric current stabs through his chest and down to his fingers, and he might be screaming, and darkness. The tracker shows Fett's ship over a cliff edge that Obi-Wan skims along as he comes in for a landing, aiming for the clearing he'd seen near enough to the estate, but hidden in the forest. For a man who Obi-Wan seems to recall priding himself on his taste, Dooku's manner looks rather... ostentatious. Obi-Wan shakes his head and refocuses on the task at hand. He needs to move quickly. Fett had gotten here hours ago now, and has likely already engaged Dooku. The fact that his ship remains tucked out of sight when Fett likely landed it isn't exactly a favorable indicator for how Fett has fared. He lands and kills the ship engine completely and immediately. The pirates had helpfully made sure they could be untraceable quickly if they needed to be, and considers the Beska helmet that Skarada had handed him. It will certainly be an advantage once he's closer to the estate, and has to consider holocams as well as Dooku sensing him, but it will also muffle his own sense of the Force. He sighs. Needs must. He'll simply have to carry it and shield as heavily as he can until he gets to the first line of perimeter guards. Force knows what shape Fett's armor will be in. Force knows what shape Fett will be in. He puts it out of his mind. He's here with a job to do. 
He'll just have to hope he isn't bringing back bad news. The forest around Dugu's manor. Castle is how hereditary nobility would refer to it, he supposes. Is dark and thick enough to be excellent cover after nightfall, and he'd like to get in and out by morning. But it isn't dark. The air here is clear, not fetid with the rot he expects to permeate the castle grounds, and through the trees he can just barely make out Dooku's silhouette in one of the uppermost windows. He takes a deep breath, puts on the helmet, and sets the HUD tracking to keep Dooku in his sights, and then moves, running and skirting around the first set of guards, looking for the way in he'd sensed vaguely, a servant's entrance perhaps, or a delivery door, and finally he catches the unmistakable foulness of a Sith, even through the Beska. Some part of him had hoped that what he, Anakin, and Shark had sensed was a trick of the Force, a mistake no matter how unlikely, that Dooku hadn't gone so far, even with all they knew about Nalase and the clones. Dooku had once been a Jedi. But now, Obi-Wan thinks grimly, he is an enemy, and he has given Obi-Wan a way in. He picks the lock quickly, an ornate old number pad that's easy enough to bypass to get the door open, and sticks to the shadows. He'd prefer to avoid guards instead of knocking them out, and the Beska is thankfully not as heavy as it seems, so his steps are quiet on the stone of the hallways. He's entered into some sort of sparsely decorated servant's corridor. Everything is spotless, of course, and the helmet's HUD, fortunately, doesn't pick up anyone human nearby. Dooku is moving in another part of the complex, along with different colored blips of his humanoid guards. He moves past locked door after locked door, silently passes one left ajar that reveals what must be an armory with... He pauses and then backtracks. It seems Fett's match against Dooku had gone poorly indeed. Obi-Wan deliberates for only a moment before scooping up the helmet and putting it in his pack. One way or another, he isn't going to leave it in Dooku's hands. Hopefully Fett will be wearing the rest of his armor. The HUD tells him that Dooku has moved all the way down from his tower to a basement level and is lingering there, undoubtedly doing something unsavory. The force echoes strangely from inside the helmet, but Obi-Wan doesn't need it to be certain that if he follows Dooku, he'll find out what's happened to Fett. He glances around, shrugs to himself, and swings off into the nearest ventilation duct he sees. At least, he thinks wryly. There won't be hollow cams to avoid in there. He follows the HUD pin he'd put on Dooku through the ducks until he is in the same wing, and sees that someone else's heat signature is close enough that Dooku's had been hiding it. Fats. It must be. The signature sparks with something unnaturally hotter than human standard. Electricity? Obi-Wan winces. He supposes that Dooku wouldn't bother electrocuting a dead man, but if he has to carry an unconscious, or worse, fat out of this place while shielding both of them, 
may prove mildly difficult. But that's a bridge he'll just have to cross when he gets to it. And for now, Dooku remains in whatever room he's keeping fed in. Obi-Wan settles back, wraps another layer of shields around himself just in case, and waits. Django comes awake to absolute agony from something around his neck. That Hutton had carking collared him, and the unfortunately familiar feeling of being cuffed to a wall. Dooku stands in front of him, hands behind his back, watching like a predator watches its next meal. It's been a long time since anyone watched him like that. He forgot how much he carking hates it. Dooku leans in to examine him more closely, and Jango can't help but scowl, straining uselessly against the cuffs on his wrist. I see your abilities haven't improved since your last performance, Mandalore Fett, Dooku says. It seems you'd like a full repeat of the experience, so I must be off to contact the slavers who make port at the other end of this system. Jango drops the tattered remains of his shields to batter him with the full force of Jango's hatred. Aduku seems unaffected. I'm going to take your head, he snarls. For Salas, for his people. He owes them that, at least. You're welcome to try again. Dooku says. You'll have some time to contemplate a new strategic approach while I arrange for your transportation. It will, of course, be inconvenient to change the oversight of Kamino, but needs must. Django spits, but it misses Dooku's face, blood landing on his collar instead. Rage flashes across the man's expression, but he reins it in quickly enough. I suppose you Mandalorians always have been a brutish people, Dooku says, fingers ghosting over the button to activate the shock collar, and Jango stiffens, can't help it, absolutely does not flinch. But Dooku turns away, uncaring. Enjoy your servitude. The ray shield hums shut behind him, and Django gives himself a full two minutes to feel the wash of rage before tucking it away. It's not useful. He needs to get out of here, and barring that, he needs to escape slavers. Boba's waiting for him. They'll have to move him when Dooku's low-life friend shows up. That'll be his best shot. The small lens in the corner of the room breaks in a small crunch of glass, distracting him from his planning and his fury, and he blinks before looking up to see that a corner of one of the ceiling panels has tilted strangely downward. Then the ceiling panel falls, swiftly followed by a humanoid in full Mandalorian armor. Might even be Beska, certainly not the plastoid the clones are going to wear one day. But the person says, landing Lida Zatuka on the stone. We don't have a lot of time. How badly are you injured? Can you walk? Django stares. There's no 
carking way. Dooku's manor isn't exactly marked on any standard map or registered in any public database, and the only one Jango directly told he was leaving was Boba. Skorada figured it out, sure, but he wouldn't have known Jango's exact destination. Jango's worked hard to make sure his ship's untrackable. And besides, Skorada wouldn't have asked for help just for... There's no way he would have asked. But the figure's cadence is familiar. And upon further inspection, the armor he's wearing looks like one of the spares Skorada had picked up after impulsively adopting six of the nulls, and one of the blasters on his belt is Kamino issued. I can walk, Jingo says, his chest and leg burn from Dooku's strikes, and he can feel more burns crawling down his neck and back and chest, but he's managed with worse. Good. The man says briskly. Stay still so I can get your collar and your cuffs. I broke the hollow cam in here, but it will take a moment. Django eyes him. How did you find me, Kenobi? He asks. The helmet tilts. Boba put a tracker on your ship, but I'll leave the details for later. We really don't have much time. I don't like my odds of beating Dooku in a duel while carrying you half alive. Boba's getting a stern lecture about Jatiz when Django gets back, and maybe a new blaster. I'll be fine, Django says, but he doesn't especially want to test the outer limits of Dooku's hospitality, so he bares his throat as much as it pains him and goes still. Kenobi works fast, picking the cuffs with barely emotion and what Django can only assume is his force, and then cutting through the shock collar, holding his cod close enough to Django's neck that he can feel the heat of the blade on his skin, but not close enough to singe. Django viciously crushes the furious relief of it gone under his heel, gets his feet under him, and stands. "'You have a ship?' he asks, rubbing feeling into his wrists. Kenobi pulls a blaster from his belt holster and hands it grip first to Django. It's a spare wester, Boba's handiwork as well. A stern, very long lecture, Django tells himself. He should probably be grateful Boba didn't try to come himself. It's what Django would have done at that age. I've docked in a clearing due northwest of the grounds. If we go through the forest, Dooku is unlikely to catch up with us. Kenobi bends over, fiddling with something in his pack. No oh, helmet, he mutters. Django shakes his head. Dooku took it. Kenobi's shoulders shake a bit, almost like he's laughing. No, your helmet, he says, and takes it out of his pack. Django stares. Kenobi holds the helmet out to him. I saw it on my way in, he says patiently. Django opens his mouth and then closes it, taking the helmet. You, he starts, then breaks off, flummoxed. He'd already dismissed the helmet as a loss when he was planning to escape during his transfer to whatever slaver ship Dooku'd found. A worse loss than the fire spray, but one he could live with. It's only Dura-Steel, after all, for all the scraps that's gotten him through. But here it is, in his hands. 
You're in no fit state to leave the way I came, Kenobi says, taking pity on him after a long moment. Jango blinks back to himself and puts the helmet on. Through the ducks? he asks. He gets the sense that Kenobi is laughing at him again. Just so, Kenobi says. I can fight if we need to fight our way out, Jango says. Dooku's got a few guards here, but he's the biggest threat. We're not fighting Dooku, Kenobi says firmly. Though your confidence in your own abilities is rather bewildering, given the predicament I found you in. Django cannot imagine what Dooku could do to him that is worse than what he's already done, besides killing him outright. Considering the fact that he's already had every opportunity to do that and still hasn't, Django likes his chances. He doesn't say that. You're projecting quite strongly right now. Kenobi continues, but if you can pull your shields up, I should be able to hide us from view of any guards so long as we stay quiet and don't encounter Dooku himself. Django pauses, concentrates for a moment, then gives up with a wince. I can't, he says. Can't what? Kenobi asks, distracted by his examination of the ray shield. I can't pull up my shields. Django says. Dooku tore through them. Kenobi turns back to him, body language shocked. He... what? Django shakes his head, then winces. Never felt it before, and he's not the first to try and get into my head. Kenobi curses. Fine, he says shortly, and pulls off his own bushai, holding a hand out. Switch with me. The Besco will help, and I can shield myself well enough, I hope. Django stills for a moment. But Kenobi's right, and Skarada, damn him for it, have been right too. Thanks, Django says, taking off his own helmet and swapping it for Kenobi's, trying not to think about it. Kenobi nods, and then goes to tug Django's helmet on. Django turns away so he doesn't have to watch that because it's just a helmet, not even Beska. But Kenobi had given it back to him, and now Kenobi will wear it. And that's strange. Kenobi probably doesn't know what it means. And even if he does, they're both practical enough to get on with it anyway. Django pulls on the bushai and shakes his head to clear it, ignoring the ache and focusing as he adjusts the HUD to the right resolution. There's a pin in the HUD that must be Dooku, probably calling his slaver friends from the throne room. Kenobi has done something to drop the ray shield while Jango wasn't looking. There's a holocam at the end of the hall, but they're sparse throughout the estate, Kenobi says. So our clock will begin when we get through the next door. He hesitates. If Dooku realizes I'm here, it will be exceedingly difficult to avoid a fight, and he may look more closely into Kamino. I can turn away guards without much of a trace, but anything more than that will be noticeable. I would therefore prefer not to use my lightsaber or the force unless absolutely necessary. Django snorts and spins the western. 
It won't be necessary, he says. Let's hope when Dooku ripped apart your shields, he didn't impact your ability to shoot then, Kenobi mutters, and heads for the hall, footsteps quiet. Django doesn't let himself go cold. Dooku's mental claws had gone for memories, bad memories, not for skills. Django doesn't think it's possible to erase skills. The wester fits in his hand the way it always does, familiar as breathing. His aim is fine. He follows close behind Kenobi, who keeps to the shadows until they reach the last blind spot before they'll get caught on hollow. Ready? Kenobi murmurs. Lead the way, Jenga replies. His injuries will keep. Kenobi nods and moves along the wall to the door, does something to the number pad there before it slides open. True to Kenobi's promise, the life signs the HUD is picking up on aren't coming towards them, always turning away before getting near the hall they're headed down, and the next. They're moving away quickly enough that the pattern looks random, Django supposes. Slight problem, Kenobi says, pausing in a corner out of sight of the cams. What? Django says. There's no way back to the entrance I found without going past the throne room. Either we take our chances, or find another way. On his way in, Django had marked a lot of conveniently placed windows, but that'll definitely take away any stealth advantage they have right now, and he's pretty sure that getting electrocuted killed his jetpack. There's one far above them now that would be perfect, the stained glass casting yellow-green shadows around them, but there's no carking way he can free-climb it with his ribs in the shape they're in. He cast a critical eye over Kenobi, who was turned away from him, watching the hall with his hand resting on the other blaster he'd brought. You got a hook in that armor? Beg pardon, Kenobi asks, turning back to him. Grappling hook, Django clarifies, and tilts his head up at the window. Standard belt kit comes with one, and you can't lift me with your force, or Duke will notice you and come running. I believe that I do have one, Kenobi says slowly. But only one. Will it hold both of us? Django scoffs. <laughs> it's Concord Dawn, make, he says, because if Sakurata had kitted out that armor, he'd bet anything that's true. It'll hold. And on the way down... As you noted, I won't be able to provide assistance, Kenobi points out. Django consults his mental map of the complex and nods. You won't need to, he says. We're on the west side. It cuts into the cliffs. It's less than three stories up, and there's a way down. Kenobi pauses for too long. He's the one who'd been so worried about how much time they have, Django thinks, exasperated. And now here he is, hesitating. Well? Django asks. Fine, Kenobi says again, unspools the hook line and hangs it to Django to clip them together. You know how to use that? Django can't help but ask. Kenobi doesn't dignify that with a response, but Django, for some reason, gets the distinct impression that he's rolling his eyes. To Kenobi's credit, He's efficient with the hook, 
sending it up before snaking an arm around Jango's waist and reeling them upwards. My apologies. This will likely aggravate your injuries, Kenobi says. Likely. His ribs are on fire. Jango tries to get his breathing under control. Still the best option, he manages. Kenobi is silent until they get to the window ledge, graciously giving Jango a few moments to catch his breath as he unclips them. We'll have to run as soon as we break this and reach the ground, Kenobi says. How fast can you move? I'll do what I have to, Jango replies. Don't fall behind. Kenobi huffs. Who was it that found who in chains? Jango ignores this, looking for his angle. Get ready, he says, and slams his elbow into the center of the second biggest plane of glass, the thinnest, according to his HUD, and shatters it. Alarms immediately start blaring and they're off. Jango compartmentalizes the way his leg and chest are burning. Kenobi goes ahead of him, moving just slightly too fast and with more confidence than an ordinary human would have on a narrow ledge like this one, following the slope down to ground level as he snipes the guards that have started running in their direction. It would probably look strange on the cams if Dooku's hired help kept ignoring them, but it sure would be useful right now. It doesn't seem to matter too much, though. Kenobi's a good shot. Django's better. The wester feels good in his hand, and it feels even better to lay down cover fire and take down five guards in one sleep, like he thought. His aim's fine, but it's always good to make sure. And he can't move as fast as Kenobi on the ledge. He'd remembered right that it's only three stories, but that's three stories he can't jump and get up again, and he's getting out on his own damn power and not being carried by Kenobi. I'd so hope to get out of this without being shot at, Kenobi calls. Django snorts. Where's the fun in that? He asks, taking out another guard as he edges quickly along down the slope towards the ground while Kenobi's systematically shooting the others. Kenobi nods at him when he reaches solid earth. Five clicks, he says. Can you make it? I said I'll do what I have to, Django says. Kenobi tilts his head. Very well. Either they've taken out all the guards who noticed them besides the ones left at the property line, or there's a lull while more are coming. Either way, this is probably their best chance to pass the perimeter. You're taking the lead. I'll make an opening. Better move fast, Django says. Kenobi nods again. Django snipes one guard, then a second and a third, and a fourth who starts heading for their position. Kenobi's already going for the gap, blaster held down, but ready at its side. Django follows. Mandoa. Burr, beret. Parent or parents. Ushai. Helmet. Darjati. Sith. Elek. Yes. Chakar. Corpse robber or petty criminal. Jabur. Bastard. Hatmanduad. Hatad. True Mandalorians or true Mandos. Hutton, Huttonla. Coward or cowardly.
Jati, Jatis. Jedi, or Jedi plural. Jedikad, lightsaber. Kad, sword. Baroya, bounty hunter. Kamini, Kaminoan. Osik, shit. Jabba, fucking. End of chapter 6